um, I, uh, <laughs> and I want to talk, what? <laughs> it's, it's actually also, thank you very much, it's actually hereditary. My mother had it. One of my uh, four children has it. And uh, one of my grandchildren has it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so if uh, my my daughter found out, who lives in the county, found out a long time ago when she was a young woman, she was in a supermarket and she laughed, and somebody came running around the aisle from the next aisle over, saying Sylvia, and she said, "No, Emily." <laughs> but it's the same. And it's nice to laugh a little bit because mostly what I want to talk about is not at all laughable. And uh, so I'll show you this first. So we'll be, I'll do a couple of things first and then we'll sit. Uh, we've been talking about paramis, which are the cultivation of um, different aspects of virtue like generosity and honesty and patience and wisdom and... Uh, uh, determination and loving kindness and equanimity and uh, making the point that every one of them is a permutation of every other one there's a way that we could say they're all gifts that we give each other people who behave in one of those ways are actually giving the gift of safety or comfort or to the people around them so I was saying that they are all permutations of each other and somebody sent me this in the email yesterday. They sent me the permutation of um, patience and wisdom. So I'll just put it up and see if you can see it. It says, patience and wisdom. Who can see what's in this picture? Not. I'll have to describe it to you. Can you, can you see it, Jeff? Yes. What is it? It looks like a big dog and a skunk. It is a big dog in the back sitting peacefully while a skunk is eating from a dish of dog food right in front. And the dog is poised. Huh? See, that's it. Dog knows best. So wisdom and patience go together at that point. And the skunk is having its meal. And you think, that dog does not feel particularly like waiting, no doubt. There's food out there. It's his bowl, probably, or hers. But... It's clear that you wait. I really like that. I'll read you this Hafiz poem that somebody sent me yesterday, I think, uh, I, in, in, I think in response to the deluge of uh, dramatic news in the last few days. It's Hafiz, and it says, Out of a great need, we are all holding hands and climbing. Not loving is letting go. We'll have to come back to that. Listen, the terrain around here is far too dangerous for that. Letting go always sounds like a good thing. People used to say, I'm, it used to be voguish to say, I'm struggling with this so much. And people would say, just let it go. As if he could, you know. <laughs> just let it go. It's always was the most idiotic thing. Say, I'm so struggling with this feeling. Just let it go. If we could, we would. Nobody purposely stays suffering. But 
uh, often I think the idea of letting things go, which was an early idea about uh, Buddhist practice, you just let everything go, your hopes, your dreams, then everything will be all right. First of all, you can't, because if they're your hopes and your dreams, you can't let them go. And if you, even if you wanted to, you, it's hard to do, to change a habit. But in this context, I think not loving is letting go of the lifeline that holds us all together, is I think what Hafiz is meaning. Not here. Oh, I'm sorry, it's my earring again. I do that every week. And then somebody reminds me every week. Thank you. Okay. So I'd, I'd rather say not loving is letting go of the lifeline that keeps us all safe. That's a nice line. Out of great need, we are all holding hands and climbing. Not loving is letting go of the lifeline that we all need to keep us safe. Listen, the terrain around here is far too dangerous for that. I just improved on Hafiz. But really, we need company these days. We need to come together. People say often, and I feel this myself, that I feel better when I drive into Spirit Rock. That's even before I get here and park and get in here and sit down. There's an awareness that I am going to be sitting with people who, like myself, feel like loving is the only thing to do. It's the only thing that really keeps us safe in this world, connected to other people, connected to the wisdom that comes from being connected to other people. Like everybody is suffering, their own suffering and other people's suffering. We do it together, so it's tolerable. So there are a lot of things that I wanted to talk about today, about maintaining courage in these days and... um, Maintaining a a hope in these days. I have some more pictures to show you, but um, I'll do that later. Let's just sit a little bit now. I've been thinking about all the different things that I offer as uh, instructions for settling into this moment with ease. And um, there are so many techniques for settling into this moment. One of them is to feel yourself breathing and to try to stay with the sense of breathing in and out because it's rhythmic and um, because it actually, if you pay attention to your breath, it will slow down. And when it does and when the attention is settled on it, it means it's not reviving old stories and worries and thoughts and distractions. So it's a break from the chatter in the mind. It's not necessary to use the breath. Some people can just say to themselves, 
I'm settling into the peace and ease that's under everything else in my life. My life is my life, and underneath it, I can feel that there's peace and ease, and I'll just rest there. I often like to start to sit with a very short use of um, phrases that bring me into this moment in a relaxed way. I was just thinking this morning of breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, I smile. That's a rubric from Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese mindfulness teacher. Breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, I smile. And maybe just for an exercise, I'll try that for 10 breaths and then I'll just sit. And if you want to, you try that for 10 breaths and sit and see if you feel anything different about it. See if it sets a tone for the rest of the sitting. And then we'll sit for maybe 25, 30 minutes. Breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, I smile. Thank <clears throat> you.
we always um, leave the last several minutes of our sitting together for people to mention um, people that they've been thinking about with uh, affection or with celebration or with um, sadness because they're dealing with some illness or I'm thinking a lot these days about my friend Rachel in New York who's coming near the end of her experience with uh, glioblastoma. <coughs> she and John McCain were diagnosed with glioblastoma just about the same time. And he appears to be frail in the same way that she's very frail and lots of people caring about them. Who are you thinking about? I'm thinking about the children left to be reunited with their parents and their parents with them. And may they find each other and experience the love for each other again. My friend Jane has been struggling with cancer for the last 10 years, and she's done okay, but it's not looking good now. Yeah, I'm thinking of my uh, friend who I came friendly.
sons and my Greek daughter-in-law and my two beautiful little granddaughters who are moving here from Greece tomorrow. And my heart is really full. May all of us who spoke and mentioned people we're thinking about, and all of us who didn't speak, but we're thinking about people we're thinking about, may all of the people that we're thinking about, and may all of us, may we be sustained by friendship and bonds of caring and kinship. May we continue really to hold hands because the terrain is difficult and take care of each other and communicate that with everyone that we meet I don't know. Did anybody else hear about a new therapy for glioblastoma? I'll be happy to hear that as I am every time you hear about that. Um, you know, I have a friend, well, we have a friend who um, uh, had um, a diagnosis of a malignant melanoma some significant number of years ago and was treated for it with an aggressive treatment and he got better. And he had 
maybe 10 years of remission and then it came back and they treated it again and it went away and then it came back and they treated it again and this time they couldn't do it and they tried this and that and that and this and nothing worked and finally they said this is it, nothing is working so probably have a few months so put your affairs in order so um, he uh, left his job in a timely way and uh, he and his wife had a recommitment ceremony in their backyard and all their friends came and they talked about how much they loved each other and um, put his affairs in order and then he got a phone call that said um, you know there's a new treatment out would you like to try it she said okay and he went I think down to Stanford I'm not sure it doesn't matter but he went there and he had the treatment and uh, came home and got so terribly 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 sick from the treatment that uh, his wife needed to take him back to the hospital and he was hospitalized. He was terribly sick in the way that people get from chemotherapy sometimes for several days until they got all the side effects under control. And then the side effects finished. So he like recuperated from that. And his cancer was gone. So, of course, he was, so everybody was surprised including his doctor. And uh, he said, now it's five years later, he's fine. Uh, He had to go back to work. (laughs) At one point he said, phooey, I have to go back to work now. He went back to work. We're in a very amazing time. Uh, uh, I, I met Susan coming in. This is Susan here in the front. And Susan has been part of this group for years, and she's been uh, telling us that her main teaching rubric for herself and for others is to stay amazed. If you get amazed, it picks up the mind. So I feel amazed when I hear that. And over the weekend, I was preparing to come in and say, um, instead of everything is amazing, I wanted to say everything is astonishing that I was thinking about the the amazing things, go to the moon, do this, do that. It's astonishing what people can do. It's also astonishing the devastation that people can do and do do. You know, that the ends of human behavior are astonishing. The whole thing is astonishing. It's not it, it's not I don't welcome that the the ends that are but, you know, it wakes up the mind to think, well, we can do something else. It would be astonishing now if the planet saved itself. It would. Um, by the way, I'm reading a book. I read it. I finished it. I really recommend it to all of you. It's called uh, The Overstory. And it's by Richard Powers. And... Uh, the, it's a contemporary novel and it's 500 pages long so it's uh, it's a prodigious read but I did it in five days and you know you just because it's compelling it's beautiful writing 
and it, it, the context is the planet in our time that is being despoiled by um, too much logging, by really by taking down all the trees that we're taking down for various immediate purposes. And uh, fictitious people, but they could be real, who come together in an effort to make um, be activists. But that, that doesn't say what it's about. It's astonishing. And uh, it has so many, you know, on the backs of books where it says the New York Times says this is great and somebody else says this is great and somebody else says this is great. Everybody in the world says this is great. The, this magazine, that magazine, the New York Times, the London Times, the this, the that, everybody who, has a, everybody who you admire says this is great and wanted to write about it. Yeah, it's just come out. Yeah, there's another book called um, it was by Michael Pollan. Change your mind. Yeah, I'm in the middle of that. Huh. Chiquita says, "Ha, huh. it's very important. It's very important." So I'm going to right away tell you a story because it's very interesting to me. Uh, but to tell you in brief, Michael Pollan is the man who wrote. Um, the Omnivore's Dilemma and a few other books like that. And uh, as a strangely, uh, or uh, although he is of an age when it would have been not unusual for him as a young person to experiment with mind-altering drugs, he didn't. Uh, he says in the book, as a matter of fact, I didn't. I was the only adolescent I knew who didn't because I had enough psychological problems when I was an adolescent. I was having a lot of trouble trying to hold it together. And so I probably wisely didn't do that. But here he is now becoming a student of, since he's so much a student of how much what we eat makes a difference in us, what we ingest. And he's an investigative journalist, and he investigated the new movement now resurrected after 20 years of it having been banned in a flurry of fear about uh, too many people taking drugs. When you think about it, here we are in the middle of this tremendous opioid dilemma. Nobody saw that in time. But anyway, back when uh, things like um, LSD and... Uh, psilocybin and uh, ketamine were being experimented on. They all got banned. And now 20 years later, they are being unbanned slowly under experimental circumstances. And there are uh, researchers going on all over the place on the effects of um, among psilocybin and uh, LSD or those kinds of drugs. And the the general, it's hard to give an overview of them, but that the experience of an altered consciousness, post-experience of altered consciousness, is for very many people a salubrious experience, that things that didn't settle before then, their mind is uh, more expansive. I've been beginning to really appreciate the... Uh, 
the term it blew my mind you know I had that experience it was a mind blowing experience so uh, but I'm only halfway through Chiquita it's, it's great read okay I'm continuing on um, because really what I'm thinking about is what I'm hopeful I mean, I'll start that sentence again I think this experience of practicing mindfulness changes your mind. I think it has a potential of change your mind without substance use. Without substance use. Um, I'm interested in the substance use as a paradigm for what expanded consciousness looks like. But I also have my own experience of consciousness expands without a substance, with technique and with practice. Uh, oh, he he is a meditator. I knew that. Yeah, and he makes that point, which is a good point. Actually, I, I guess I could tell this story. It'll be it'll be. It's not embarrassing. In my life, I tried LSD one time, under a controlled circumstance. Way long ago, my children were teenagers, and they're in their fifties now. So it's a long time ago, and. Um, with a guide with whom I met beforehand who came to my house. So all the right circumstances for experimenting with LSD. And it was a really extraordinary experience, which I could remember, I can remember right now. But the thing that's important about it is I was so wow about it. And sometime after that experience, I was with my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, some sort of circumstance. He was on the West Coast and he was visiting and he was at my home talking about one thing or another. And I said about my experience with that. And he said, uh, you know, of course, that you can do the same thing with meditating. So I thought, ah, you know. But you can. And subsequently, I had lots of far out and amazing experiences with meditating. And truth to tell, they were probably without having so much of a yellow submarine feeling about it. They were probably more helpful in the long run in terms of changing my mind. Anyway, I wanted to talk about, well, I'll tell you a story first. Now, before I tell the story, I just want to, because I I gave you a specific instruction today about sitting, that before you sit, do ten renditions of breathing in, I uh, calm my body, breathing out, I smile. I want at least one or two people to tell me if that was helpful or what happened or what. Yes? Helpful, very helpful. Would you care to elaborate? Thank you very much. Who else wants to say a word about that? Linda. There you go. Linda, wait, here comes the the microphone. You can say it so everybody can hear it. I loved it. Um, I mean, when I sit and breathe in and breathe out, I I enjoy it anyways. But to, to 
help my body think about calm and, and to smile afterwards. It's, it felt like every cell was doing both of those. It was, a, it was delightful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. I'm very glad to hear that. Thank you. Yeah. I remember once being at a retreat uh, that Thich Nhat Hanh was teaching and I was walking down towards wherever I was going and I noticed that what, uh, as people had little pieces of paper in front of them to remind them of certain things. And somebody had one that said, breathing in, I call my body breathing out, I smile. That's, that's right where they saw it. And I, I, I thought, goodness, you could remember that. I mean, it's not that big of a deal. You have to have a cue card. But that was just such a sassy, kind of not friendly thing to think. Well, you know, that's it's my usually squirrely arrogant thought I'm, I'm embarrassed now that I told you that so I'll just have to get over that but anyway what else did you think so I thought thank God I'm not thinking anymore <laughs> <laughs> one more behind you Hilda usually I can't do the uh, words and I just breathe in and out. But today, I, I needed to, and I found myself saying, uh, I'm calm, but we smile. Breathing in, I'm calm, but we smile. So I, I transitioned it to we in this room, and, mm-hmm. and that was really calming to me. You know what, I spent, thank you very much. What I especially like is in your reframing of it, is that we're none of us doing this alone. Don't let go. You know, don't let go of loving, of connecting to everybody else. Con- connected, we're okay. Alone, it's hard. Anybody else had one more thing they really wanted to say? Here you go. Um, I always appreciated Thich Nhat Hanh and his uh, urging us to smile. I appreciated the simplicity of um, what you suggested we do to focus on the breath. Mm-hmm. And I just find all too often there's a lot of talking, and, uh, you know, success. <clears throat> but to immediately get focused on the breath, and it can often, and then it can give us something to return to, mm-hmm. just to get back to the breath. Thank you very much. Today, thank you. Thank you very much. So the other day, oh, let's see, people coming in. Yeah, yeah, come, 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 come. Where's our monitor or something? Bill, we want to see if there's somebody wants to come in. There's a person with a walker and. Oh, here comes Pam. She'll do it. Thanks. The other day, I was sitting at my computer, with, and working on the computer, and I'm sitting alongside a window wall, the windowsill over here, and I'm typing away, looking at the computer, and all of a sudden, through the half-open window next to me, 
I hear scrunch, scrunch, scrunch. My uh, outside the window is um, the front of my house, which is up on the top of a small rise, and we don't have any flat. It's a garden that goes down the side of a hill, and um, it's got a lot of that doesn't have uh, grass. It has plants and flowers that try to grow. Um, anyway, I hear scrunch, 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 like there's an animal walking in my garden. And I look this way, and I just can see the top of a doe, big doe, beautiful big doe, chomping off the top of my agapanthus. Right <laughs> and in, uh, in a second, I start to stand up, and I have, I'm going to shout out, hey, you know. Because they're going to, she'll run away, but she'll be back two minutes from now. But anyway, but the hay is forming in my throat. I'm just standing up to shout out, hey. And I stand up, and under the doe is a fawn suckling away and nudging, you know, the way they do so they can get some more milk. And in that second, it was not more than two second event. Like, hey, look at that. And I thought to myself, eat all the agapanthus, whatever you need. You know, I mean, wouldn't you have felt that way? Yeah. All of a sudden, help yourself, be my guest. You know. So it gives me the chills to say because I also knew in that moment. First of all, I watched, you know, really an historic, sh- you know, a, a, a cataclysmic shift from A to B. But then I realized. B was so much more pleasant than A, when you think about mind states. Be my guest, eat my garden, whatever you need. It's just so much more pleasant than err, get out of here. And the err is like a, a, it's a uh, impulse, but to get over it, and that it happened in a second, the whole event, it's a two second event, but I'm very glad you got it. That's it, that's it. The mind can do that. And I thought to myself, all right, I don't have any problem with my first impulse is, hey, I, what I really want is a mind that thinks, ah, ah, I want that. I don't want a bigger space in between there. I want it to just do that. I want a, I want a mind that does that. That's what I'd like. That's what I'm trying to do. That I want a mind that will welcome the world not with, I don't even think of it as metta, I think of it as forgiving the world. Just forgiving the world. That's what deer do. They eat agapanthus, what, you know? They also know, I, I think that was when I thought about staying astonished, I was thinking about how deer know what to eat, they know how to have a baby, they know how to feed it, they don't have to read a Lamaze, the La Leche League does not have to come and visit them. They figure it out, you know, they know how to do that. That's amazing, it's astounding. Deer know how to do that. Ants know how to find their way into the house and everything knows how to do its thing. If you look at it, it's astonishing. If... uh, in Overstory, what I thought was so astonishing is that trees talk to each other. They don't talk in words, but they communicate to each other. The elm at this end of an elm grove tell the elm at the other end that elm blight is starting over here 
and they change the way they metabolize air and water over here to be able to change their pH of themselves or something or other that's resistant to the blight. With elm, not so well, but with other things, or with other things more, but I forget which ones do it better. But they talk to each other. And the the whole world is alive with stuff talking to each other. And and uh, when um, now that I'm reading uh, the pollen book, mushrooms are talking to each other and communicating with each other, not with words, but sending out signals. The whole world is talking to each other and communicating with each other. And you look at it and you think, if this is alive, this is really splendid. And could we live in it as participants in this alive, intense, amazing creation instead of having dominion over it and farming it for our immediate purposes? I didn't finish the uh, overstory book, uh, Depressed or Hopeless, even though it's pretty depressing what's going on with the, the using up of the planet and the despoiling of it. I somehow ended it up thinking there's going to be an upswell of people who are going to turn it around, and there certainly is an upswell of people figuring out new ways like my friend Alan, where they said, put your affairs in order, we don't have another way. And they said, we do have another way, come back in. And here he is, back at work. Don't, we don't know yet who has invented this or that that'll be the counteractive. Don't know yet what's going to be the thing that's going to turn around people's minds so that they don't have the same response as they had before so that instead of using things or pushing them away or not feeling connected to them so I've been thinking of the uh, the I, I was thinking of um, talking thinking of mindfulness as um, reducing the stress in life because you figure out what's the wise thing to do. For a long time I was thinking about mindfulness is the balanced recognition of what's arising moment to moment out here and in here so that you can figure out what's the wisest response so that you won't make it worse there. Here is the place to show the picture of the dog that is not moving forward to take the dog food. It would be unwise. It's not the same as the dog saying, this poor skunk probably has baby skunks, let it feed itself first, and then it's doing this out of a wisdom. I want to do... I want, I want that wisdom that doesn't make my life worse. But I want what comes along with the wisdom, so I want to be able to add to. It's the moment-to-moment awareness of what's happening outside and in me 
so that I will be prepared to respond out of compassion for the well-being of myself and other people. Not just so I won't get hurt, but out of compassion. I want to do it, which is the same as saying out of forgiveness. Every once in a while you hear the word broken-hearted. Sometimes people say when they go home from a retreat, at the end of a retreat, I'm afraid to go out in the world. So I've been here for a week, I'm so relaxed, I just love everybody, I love the turkeys, I love the, uh, what was the other thing, the turkeys and the, hmm? and the coyotes, and the frogs, and I love them, and I love all the people here, even the people I had an aversion to the first day because they chomp too loud when they eat or they breathe too loud when they sit. It's amazing what people can get annoyed at in the middle of Eden. You know, they, in, a, in the middle of a perfectly contrived place that's calming with good food and clean and beautiful, heated floors and the toilets, and people get annoyed, they breathe too loud, they, they chomp too loud in the dining room. They take too much food. You know, you think you could maybe put it together, but we can't. The getting annoyed mechanism is like so highly trained, you know. That. But then, it usually, whoever that is, don't worry about it. <laughs> it always happens to somebody. Just, <laughs> it's nothing. When that happens, everybody usually thinks, uh-oh, I hope that's not me. Did you think that? How many people thought, uh-oh, is it me? Then the second thing they think is, oh, good, it's not me. And then the third thing they think after that is, I hope the person whose phone it is doesn't feel bad because we intuit that they might. Of course not, it's just a phone. But how to, in this, in this kind of an age, how can we forgive what's really heartbreaking? Like immigrants all over the world. I looked at, um, so what is the, I, I didn't finish a sentence earlier. It's not just about not adding stress to my life by bad habits in my mind. It's really about, I, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm pretty good at doing that. I actually want to forgive the world for being like it is. I don't have to like it, but I don't want it to... uh, May I be free of enmity and danger. I don't want to make things other. I don't want to be mad about people who have the other politics. I wish they'd change their mind. I hope they'll change their mind. I don't want to be mad at them. I figure I have a certain amount of real estate in my mind and I don't want to take it up with hating. I just, I, I won't fit it. If you think about it, it's self-serving. What was I going to show you? Uh, there's an article called The Stress-Free Summer Issue. But I don't think you can have a stress-free. The world is full of... This is uh, Melissa Sutor. She's a new mindfulness teacher. 
It's a beautiful cover. Beautiful looking woman too. But but I I I, I was thinking about it. I disagreed with the stress free. We don't have a stress free life. There's always a stress. And it's more it's more than just dealing with the stress. So I'm gonna correct something. I, I thought I, I I read an article and it said something about you can take the the, the stress out of your life, and uh, you have a toolkit of ways to work with things that come up. Absolutely, I don't disagree with that at all. All I want to say is that's not the whole thing. That's on the way to the whole thing. The whole thing is changing your heart, really changing your mind, so that it meets things with love and with compassion, and from that with wisdom I can't imagine the dog saying to the skunk listen go right ahead I'm sure you have a den full of skunks to feed help yourself first but we're not that we're people I uh, I wrote an article I wrote an essay 25 years ago whenever this book was published this is the first book that I wrote 1995 I believe that 23 years ago and it did very well. <laughs> and it's a very nice book. I love it. It's fun. It reminds me of myself 25 years ago. Um, but I told a story on it. This is the second story in the whole book. And it says, uh, it talks about a group that, uh, that I'm part of, a group that's a, um, a group of uh, Buddhist teachers in different lineages and we meet a couple of times a year and we share what's going on in our lives and it's still going on and I said uh, I described that group and then I said I'm listening to all of us speaking and people said uh, things like I'm doing all right and I'm pretty happy and uh, but people were telling stories about having lives with the usual sturm and drang and problems and People had relationship problems, aging parent problems. Now we are the aging parents, or I am anyway. <laughs> and I just said that last sentence. I had a tremendous compassion for my adult children. I'm their aging mother that they have to think about. Um, people with children with serious illnesses, everybody had something, and yet everybody said something like, I'm pretty much all right, I'm pretty content. Didn't mean that they weren't struggling with what they had, but they they hadn't made it worse. Uh, and I thought to myself as I looked around, what we're all doing is we're managing gracefully. Managing gracefully, I said, is not second rate. I'm pleased to think of myself as managing gracefully. It's a whole lot better than 10 years ago or 20 years ago when I was managing tensely or fearfully. Everybody manages one way or another. Everyone who's alive and reading this book has managed. Managing gracefully or even semi-gracefully is terrific. So what I want to say now is I think it is terrific. And if the whole world managed gracefully, we'd have a different world and it'd be great. And I think we can do more than that even. We can actually manage out of love, out of compassion for the world, brokenhearted, to manage with compassion and with forgiveness. People are what they are because they couldn't be something else. If they could be something else, they would. 
They learned differently. They had backgrounds that were different. People taught them different things. It was different times. They hadn't learned otherwise. I find that I, I, I found that um, there were a couple of things that just caught my my heart. I began to think that like a movie can change how you are. I thought, what's going to change? How many people have seen a movie that they remember that changed their heart? What was your movie, Jeff? Which one? A Thousand Clowns. Thousand, huh? Featuring Jason Robot. A Thousand Clowns. What else? Cinema Paradiso. What else? The Driving Lesson. What else? My life is a dog. Le Gardien. Anybody saw Le Gardien? It was just making the rounds of the art films. Le Gardien is a story of um, the farm women in France when the men were all called up to fight in 1914, 15, 16, 17. And were left actually with... This is when they were uh, plowing with um, with an ox and a person holding a plow and planting and and harvesting with a scythe and doing it themselves and not only that but trying to keep their minds together and making decisions that were painful to see but tremendously courageous seeing a movie seeing a photo do you see the cover of the New Yorker last week? Can you see it or shall I tell you? It's a painting of the bottom of the Statue of Liberty and out of the folds of her skirt are peering out children. And you, should, you probably all know the Emma Lazarus poem that's on the, on the base of the Statue of Liberty. It says, Give me your tired, your weary, your huddled masses yearning to breathe, breathe free. The something, something... Yeah, the, the teeming refuge of your distant shore. Send these, the something, something to me. So it makes my, and my parents, well, my mother was born just after her parents arrived, but my father was nine. He couldn't read English when he came, if he saw that. But his father was an illegal immigrant. People just came in those days. You didn't need visas, you just came. My grandfather was illegal because he came twice. You were only supposed to come once. And he came once, and unbelievably, he stayed a number of years and could not manage to get a job. That, I mean, he was illiterate, he was uneducated. And he, most people were that came, but they got some sort of laborer job. He couldn't do that, so he went back to Europe. Married a woman, had a child that was my father, 
and then left again to try to make it in again. So somehow I think he got his passport papers changed, changed his name, and he came. And he told his wife, I'll get a job and send money for you and the child. And he came, and it was 1912 or 13, and the war broke out, and they couldn't come until 1920. So so my father met his father at Ellis Island, and his recollection was, here comes this little man with a bowler hat, little pot belly, and... Um, who worked in a in a, a garment factory sewing seams on boys' pants and got paid by the unit. And he remembers his mother t- saying to him in Yiddish, this is your father. Imagine you've spent nine years sleeping with your mother in the same bed because they were refugees. They were in a refugee camp for most of it, sleeping in the same bed with his mother, her only child, for nine years. They were very close. They come here... They go back to a tenement apartment with a kitchen and one bedroom and the toilet down the hall in Williamsburg. And my father's on a cot in the kitchen. And my mother, my grandmother, is in a bed in the bedroom with her husband. My father has not been in another bed from his mother. <laughs> you know, nowadays we probably think of something. Like, let's all sleep together, the three of us in the bed for a while, or we'll do something. But they all lived out there. They got to stay. They got papers. They got to stay. And education was free, and my father got to go to school, and ultimately had an administrative job in the, San Francisco, in the New York school system. He taught mathematics actually, in the New York City school system. Vicky did teach mathematics. You are a mathematics teacher, aren't you, Vicky? I was. You were. <laughs> I tried. Yeah. My, uh, my uh, youngest grandson is starting his fourth year at UC Santa Cruz with a major in math. So he likes to think his great-grandfather would be proud of him. I am proud of him. I want to read you a poem. This is a picture that I think you look at this picture and you think, ah, how did that happen? I read you a poem, I think you think, ah. It's called American Pastime. When I was a little kid in Chicago, Jimmy Yancey, the great blues and boogie-woogie piano player, worked as a groundskeeper at Comiskey Park where the White Sox played. Years later, I listened to his records and did the best I could to imitate his left hand, not knowing he'd played baseball for the Chicago All-Americans in the Negro Leagues, throwing down his best curves and sliders on both the black and white keys, remembering how he'd appeared as a tap dancer and pianist in Europe and in Carnegie Hall, then kept his day job working at Comiskey for 25 years until he died in 1951, sweeping the infield. Do you hear that? You think, ah. Somehow, in this country, in this century, or in this last century, doesn't like, what does that do? Tell me what you thought about that. Like, ah? I mean, I 
mean, brings into perspective uh, how people who can be so talented and have so much to give land up doing things like sweeping in fields. Or like this, it was a world where because you were African American, you had to play in a different league. Yeah. You know that my grandchildren hardly know about that. They, they, I'm happy to say, are growing up in a world where it's not finished the awareness of ethnicity making a difference, but it's different. The poem is Barry Gifford, and it's in the same issue of The New Yorker that I took this out of. Isn't that good? Very good. I want to say that about how, how, how are we going to somehow use our dismay? Because I, I think it's different to be dismayed than to be angry. That's what I really think, that something happens and... If I'm, well, let me think about how, before I say this to make sure it's true. Like I see something happening in the political sphere these days. So complete candor requires that I tell you that notwithstanding my vow of not turning on cable TV, I turned it on two days ago. I turned it on two... Who else turned it on two days ago? There was too much happening and everybody told me about it to not watch. I was hearing about it. And uh, it was astonishing. Um, and I really wanted to... Uh, I could watch because I could possibly get angry. But I was uh, like so dismayed. How could this happen? How could this happen? Who let this happen? But it wasn't. But it's different from. Well, you talk to me about it. Can you see the difference between dismay and disheartened and angry? Well, Chiquita. It's more reactive. Yeah. Dismay is just a, a sadness. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Anybody else? Said dismay is sadness, and anger is. Yeah. Actually, this is something that I've been meaning to ask you for a while. I'm glad that you brought this up. Um, m many years ago in New York, um, somebody quoted you um, as, as saying, nobody gets away with anything ever. Um, do, you, do you remember having said that? Because this was, this was said like three times. <laughs> they said I said that? Yeah. Yeah, this was during a Dharma talk. So if you didn't say it, I'm sorry. But, uh, but it always st stuck with me because um, I've been seeing a <laughs> Someone in particular get away with a lot and and be awarded the highest, you know, office, you know, for that, and um, and it just keeps coming. No, 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 no. First of all, on the matter of I said that, uh, first of all, I can't imagine saying it, but if I said it, I was wrong. So, but um, who knows what I said? Uh, I said something else that I am still cleaning up. First of all, I'm, this one over here that, uh, that I just read to you, managing gracefully, is lovely. It's okay, managing gracefully. It's not the ultimate of what we can do. We can manage gracefully because we are moved beyond words to compassion. 
When people, I was going to say this before, when people leave retreats, they sometimes say, I'm afraid to go out in the world because I've been here for five days or ten days or two weeks and my heart feels so open and I love everybody here and even the people who got on my nerves, I love them. And I'm afraid to go out in the world because I don't know any of the news that's going on. Like there's a particular thing. And I'm afraid I can't... Uh, wait, there's a special word that they say. I'm, t- I'm too naked. Um, I'm too vulnerable to go out. That's it. I'm too vulnerable to go out in the world. Which is my cue line to say, I hope so. I really am hoping that we all become too vulnerable so that we can't stand it. And that out of a complete dismay... Not not out of, not out of anger and not af- out of getting it even or retribution. I want us to be so vulnerable that we can't we can't take it. That we have to say this doesn't go. I'm too vulnerable. Like this can't happen. If everybody realized, you know, there have been moments. This is I'm, I'm surprising myself. You know how the mind sifts through. On the day that the that it started, on the day either the day of the beginning of shock and awe and the uh, uh, invasion of Iraq on trumped up reasons, but nevertheless, and it's a bad metaphor, trumped up reasons. But leaving that aside, I was in the, a health club that I belonged to, which I'd gone to, and I was on the treadmill. And I'm running on a treadmill. This is now almost 20 years ago, 15 years ago, when I could still run on a treadmill. Running on a treadmill, and over here there are people running on treadmills either side of me. And it comes on with a... It's like a feature series. It says shock and awe, like a movie. And then all of a sudden, we are seeing up close and personal in real time uh, journalists embedded in the troops that are uh, in, um, what's the name of the capital of Iraq? Uh, Baghdad. And and you're watching that, people shooting each other in real time with real bullets in tanks. And I'm, I'm running on the treadmill and I'm watching that and people around me watching and running and I suddenly have a feeling, this is crazy. Why am I not getting off this treadmill and flinging myself on the floor and banging my head on the floor? Why is everybody not getting off that, stopping the treadmill, getting off, bowing down to the floor, you know, doing something? We just keep running on the treadmill and watching this like it's the movie of the week from, you know, I thought to myself, we've gone crazy. We should have, I should have turn that off and I don't know what I would have done but to be that was a that was a, like a, a really a moment in my life how did we do that and maybe it has something to do with uh, my response which I always hope is not going to sound glib when people say I'll be too vulnerable and I respond and I say I don't think there's such a thing as too vulnerable I really w- I'm waiting for us to be so vulnerable that we get off the treadmill And we make a phone call.
I have not since Saturday, Friday, made a phone call to a political figure. But now having said that, I promise you I will have done it in the next 24 hours. And I call Republicans. I'll call Lisa Murkowski and I'll call uh, uh, Claire... Hmm? Claire McCaskill. And... um, I don't know. Who else will you call? Susan Collins. Susan Collins. Joaquin Castro. To praise. We could do things. Not in anger. But in complete despair. I think that's what happens, that the mind gets frightened. You know, if we go back to, I'm sitting at my computer and munch, 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 and the shout is about to come out of me, hey, and because they are, uh, I hope you got this when I was telling it before, it's eating my uh, agapanthus, not my agapanthus, they're the agapanthus that's growing outside that deer like to eat. That's what it is. Not mine. I didn't even plant them, as a matter of fact. They've been there for the 57 years I've lived in that house. I mean, it's been there. It replants itself every year. And I never have flowers because just when they bloom, the deer come around and take care of them. Yeah, they really like them. Um, but how do... How do how to take that hay and channel it into something that is useful in the world and also feels better in me. Because I was, I was thinking of, I was glad that I was going to be here today because I, I feel like one of the um, challenges or maybe the challenge for all of us in these days is to keep um, enough buoyancy in the heart, enough awe and wonder. Do you know what I did over the weekend to counteract this? I watched countless hours of the Tour de France because I anybody watches Tour de France? NBC Sports Network, NBC SM, Tour de France. They play it from 5 until 8 in the morning and a rerun from 5 until 8 in the afternoon. I watch it every year. I know all, and I don't know all those players, those riders. But over the years, I'm familiar with them. And for many years, I cycled not that kind of cycling, but still I admired it. And it's so, I so admire the virtuosity of that sport. And I like the overhead images of France, which you get from the helicopter images. So I watched that. I watched the uh, World Cup. How, who am I, how many, did you watch the World Cup? That was amazing. People are... What I do with that is... And that, I have the same sort of awe when I see that as I did when I went to the Ring Opera the, the week before. I think before I, before I... When I was here last, I said I was going to see the Ring. The Ring of the Nibelungen which is the four operas, the four Wagner operas that you see all in one week 
amounting to 17 and a half hours of opera, which you really need to be an aficionado for. But once you get into it, you feel like seeing more of them. It's, it's, um, it's like you don't say, I heard the Beethoven mind, uh, violent concerto, so I don't have to hear it again. You, I mean, if you liked it, then you have to hear it again. Or whatever, rock music, they have charts because there are certain ones that people like to hear again and again and again. So the, the ring... I'll tell you something about the ring right away because I forgot I was going to tell you and I did tell you. I'll tell you this. Uh, who sent me? One of my friends sent me this poem yesterday. Do you know this? Um, do you know the poet Jack Gilbert, Susan? So this is Jack Gilbert and it's called The Brief for the Defense. Do you know that poem? Because there is... Um, Well, I'll read the beginning of it. There is sorrow everywhere, slaughter everywhere. If babies are not starving someplace, they're starving somewhere else. But we enjoy our lives because that's what God wants. I, you can do that, God, whatever you want. Um, um, otherwise, the mornings before summer dawn would not be made so fine. The Bengal tire tiger would not be fashioned so miraculously well. The poor women at the, fa- women at the fountain are laughing together between the suffering they have known and the awfulness in their future, smiling and laughing while someone in the village is very sick. There is laughter every day in the terrible streets of Calcutta and the women... If we deny our happiness and re- resist our satisfaction we lessen the importance of their deprivation. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to expect, accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. It has another half of the poem. But in the ruthless furnace of this world. What? So, a note of um, I spent some time on Saturday with uh, Barbara Lee and Maxine Waters, and I just want to tell you, these people are on fire, and it's, I, I mean, it's going it, to, if we work to flip things, if we work to get the right people, we've got to do this. This is the commitment we've got to make in the future. That's right. And it's something we can do, and there are, we have some wonderful people who are, who are there and, and, and really want that, and, and it's, it's our job now. Everybody has to do this together, yeah. each in their own way. Um, you know, I'm, and one of the things about Spirit Rock is uh, it because it's a religious institution, we are not supposed to express a partisan view. But telling everybody that they have to vote is not a partisan view. Telling people that there's the numbers of people who say, well, it's all corrupt anyway, so my vote doesn't matter. Why should I vote? Not voting matters. Everything, every action may, has a significance into the future. The butterfly that flaps its wings in New England is part of the typhoon in the South Seas. Uh, 
to not vote, to vote in my family, this is maybe the thing I'll tell you about that, my family that did come, all of my grandparents came, illiterate, unschooled, untalented, uh, and were all upstanding citizens. They, they were, lived on the poverty edge always, but behaved themselves. Their children went to school, and their grandchildren, their children, their children went to college, their grandchildren went to college, their great-grandchildren are going to college or doing something else, not all of them, but doing something worthwhile in the world. And when I was growing up, voting was a religious act. You could not vote by, by you couldn't vote by mail. You had to go, my mother was uh, physically not a well woman, but she could if she walked slowly and paced herself. She had, uh, she had a diseased heart, but if she walked slowly, she could get someplace. And my grandparents were elderly, but we all walked together like a little parade. Like you all walked together to the synagogue on Rosh Hashanah, you all walked together to the voting place on election day. And I stood in the voting booth with my mother, who in those days in New York you pulled a curtain around you and you voted on uh, pulling levers. And uh, my grandparents, who never did read actually, knew that they were supposed to vote either the second row down or the third row. I th I'm pretty sure they all voted the third row down in 1942. Whenever uh, Henry Wallace ran for uh, president in a third party, former Secretary of Agriculture, very progressive, ran on a third party ticket, my family voted. Otherwise, they voted the Democratic line. Otherwise, my mother voted Democratic line across or the third party across. And she voted for someone on the New York City Council who was, in fact, a communist before it was illegal. And but she had very, very progressive politics. And she had, and this is before anybody knew about Stalin and what he was really doing. So she had a misview of that. But it was one of the moments in my life because she, I was watching her. She vote, 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 and she felt dropped down here, and she voted here, and went back up, and she looked down at me. And she said, don't tell daddy. <laughs> and that was a really defining moment in my life. I felt so empowered by that time. I felt like she, you know, she, I was inducted into the, into the company of women who had their own ideas and who stood for them and acted on them. So I come from a long line of opinionated women. <laughs> but I love that moment. Didn't you like that? That's a great moment. But the thing is, we all voted because it was as, like a religious act. The only time we ever went all together is on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and on Election Day, and the whole family marched to the polls. So really, uh, somebody who used to come to this class quite a lot, Ray... His name, Ray, the dentist, uh, 
goes to other states every year. He's still fixing teeth and still going to other states and driving people to the polls on election days and really getting out the vote. We should think about it between now. That's a collective we. What could we do? So it's not a, it's not a partisan comment. Voting is, voting is not a partisan act. It's, a, uh, it's really an act of conscience because it's, it counts. We must have stubbornness to, ex- we must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. The reason I like that is that somehow when the news is so staggeringly terrible uh, and I watch three hours of bicycle riding and I see these people have put a million miles in the saddle under them. And they've done all kinds of things and they take all kinds of amazing, daring risks. And I'm thrilled with their virtuosity. And I love that. And it picks up the heart. You see, there are lovely things in the world, like people who are bicyclists and people who, if I go to an opera and there's a scene and somebody sings amazingly, Well, there's a scene with a hundred people and everybody sings amazingly, and the orchestra plays amazingly. And I do the math always, I think to myself, if I multiply the number of hours that each of those people practiced, rehearsed and practiced and went to lessons and practiced their lessons afterwards, the number of hours of practicing so that they can do that virtuosity and uh, the numbers of parents involved who took them to the lessons and paid for the lessons and encouraged them and did what they could for them. And if you multiply the number of singers and the number of musicians and the people who choreograph the dancing and the directors and the producers and the costume makers and all of the people that went to make this really beautiful piece of art that's totally stunning, the, the people who go to these operas, which you probably guessed, because you really have to like them, they're incredible pageants, when the lights go down and the curtain goes up, sit immobile. They unpeel their cough drop before it starts, so it shouldn't have to, so the, the, the paper shouldn't make a wrinkling sound. Nobody moves. They sit like they're, they don't make a movie. Even the, curtain, the, the scrim goes down for a scene change for two minutes and goes up till it continues. They don't chat in between or cough. They just sit there because they are really, really wrapped in the experience because it transports them, it moves them. I'm not saying that that's the experience everybody should have, but when there's an experience like that, like that one, I noticed how much of a counteractive it was to me to think, you know, the whole time that I sat here, I did not think about what was going on there. That's happening, and this is also happening. And I could spend the time that this is happening thinking about what's happening there, but it won't change it. It will just miss that. That's what we must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. We all go there as if we don't know it's happening, but we know it's happening. Now we're having this now. Later I'll go home and write my congressperson or I'll do this or do that. Yeah, yeah. We need it. And we need a... There, there. 
Uh, I just wanted to share this because it's helped me so much in the last few days. In, in meditation a few days ago, for some reason I just started thinking about all the multiple, multiple, multiple names of God. And then something was just given to me as a gift of something that I should really pay attention to now. And that was another name of God. And this, the name of God was, You Are Not Alone. Mm. And that's been just a powerful gift for me. And I, I see it everywhere now. I also wanted to say that when I was growing up, I had a polling place in my home. I didn't know what was going on. I remember being young and not knowing what was going on. And all these people were coming into my living room. And there were all these booths in there. And I actually didn't like it at first. I felt intruded upon. But then I, I was very grateful to grow up in a family with a wonderfully liberal mother who was very active in that way. Mm-hmm. That's great. I rejoice for you. I rejoice. So who needs to say something because we have three minutes left to say it in? Otherwise we'll... Mark, Linda. One thought that came up when you were talking about the deer in the, with the fawn and um, with the little baby and and it reminded me of the the situation when we were, you know, collecting our immigrants at the border, and it, and what changed it? So the children, and how often they do bring my heart to seeing things differently, and so I was very appreciative of your story. I was very, I did notice that there was such a big outcry that it stopped, didn't stop soon enough, and it started, but it stopped. That was reassuring to me. Um, when you were talking about the difference between um, being vulnerable and being angry, I thought that was very interesting. I think anger is defensive. It's pushing away. Mm -hmm. And being vulnerable, in my experience, is much more painful. (laughs) And I think that's where Mm -hmm. the difference is, that being vulnerable is... Mm -hmm. It's hard to be vulnerable and not be in the moment with what's going on and mindful of what's going on. That's, I think, a very important point. I will try to remember it. I'll deputize Lynn or somebody, that, or Joe, to remind me of that point because I want to start there next week. I think it's true that we push it away because if it comes here and we let it in, it's terribly painful. But that's all right, too. You know, I actually... Uh, I, I woke up this morning thinking of a line, and I, and I meant to Google it, because it's a line that, it's the end of a poem that ends, a sadder and a wiser man he rose the morrow morn. Do you know what poem that is? Somebody has some experience and he wakes up the next day, sadder and wiser. Who has their Google right there? A sadder, and I, I think it's the ancient mariner. You think it's the ancient mariner? A sadder and a wiser man, he rose the morrow morn. 
I think we get sadder and wiser. But you know what? There may be a really important... The morrow morn. That's going to be Coleridge. No, Tennyson. Coleridge is the ancient manner. I woke up this morning thinking of that. See, it's from the ancient mariner, so it is Coleridge. I woke up thinking that, but this this is the very point I think you're making, and you really are going to remember this, Joe. Well, then write it down. That um, one of one of the one of the Brahma Viharas, one of the limitless um, divine abodes of the mind, is uh, joy. And the what is recognized as the um, near enemy of joy, which means the opposite of joy is sorrow or anguish, but the near enemy, they say, is exuberance. And I used to think, well, that doesn't sound right. Like, exuberance is a lot of joy, so how could that be bad? How could that be an enemy? Exuberance, all the better. But I, I come to think that exuberance clouds the mind also if you get to um, so that um, when the, that intensity clouds the mind exuberance and I think that what we're afraid of is feeling difficulty that it will it'll render us helpless F- feeling dismay or sadness heartbroken that we won't be able to stand it and I think we can feel heartbroken and stand it and come out of it kinder on the other side. But not so exuberant. A sadder and a wiser person. The morrow morn. Read the quote one more time and say who wrote it. The joy quote. This one, the... Um, we must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. And it's uh, Jack Gilbert from a, I guess it it says Jack Gilbert, Refusing Heaven. Maybe that's the book. The name of this is A Brief for the Defense. Anyway, I would like to propose a homework. How many people are planning to be here next week? (laughs) Try to do this homework. Bring a poem or a picture a poem that will take less than 30 seconds to read or less than a minute or a minute. Bring a picture like the cover of The New Yorker. I think we are practicing opening our hearts for the whole world. We'll have a little lab course in that. I get tears in my eyes thinking how it's going to be. So so do it. May all beings near and far take care of each other and forgive everybody. You know about Jesus saying, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. It can be any subject that moves your heart. Like that poem. Or that picture. You can move it up or move it down. It's like playing scales on your heart.
Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.